we're always looking for that next piece of fuel, and some people and finding out what it is that's stopping people is is something that I'm afraid of. Welcome to the Shut Up Show. This is the Brave Solopreneurs Podcast, helping you shut up and make shit happen. Inside every episode, you'll hear raw and uncensored conversations with amazing entrepreneurs and thought leaders who bring their best work every day despite being scared shitless. You'll gain mindset strategies on how to brave through your fears, tactical advice to help you define your shut-up moment, and impact-driven tips inspiring you to live and work on your own terms. And now, your hosts and co-shut-uppers of making shit happen, Bernie Shung and Phil Gerbyshack. This is the uh, is the warm-up act, is it? That's right. Yeah, Nick, we warm up every single time on the Shut Up Show with some, some calisthenics, a little dancing. Sometimes we do the snake. But today we get to interview you, dude, Nick Kellett, the founder of Listly and one of the smartest guys I know. He does all sorts of cool entrepreneurial stuff. I got to meet Nick a few times at SobCon. I think uh, Bernie knows him well. He's also a friend of uh, one of our one of our Bernie and my mutual friends, Brandon McCallum. So we're super delighted that you're here, Nick. What's going on, dude? Awesome. No, it's awesome to be here. I just I was uh, so excited. I've watched quite a few of your shows, and I'm like, oh yeah, it's great. Boom! You're the guy, dude. Yeah, we're here. I'm on the show. We booked this like month ago. I know, right? Yeah, <laughs> I was we've like, had you in the can for a while. I was fearful I was going to forget it, and then this, morning, this Monday I was like, oh, it's this week, yeah. <laughs> and then literally awesome. two minutes after I'd figured that out, you sent me the email saying this is how we're going to roll, so it's good. Yeah, yeah, Bernie is awesome at making sure everything goes smoothly. And I'm pretty awesome at making people fearful about getting ready for the show. <laughs> I, know, you know what? I, I actually sat here for five minutes before the show. I feel more fear now. This ten minutes waiting for the show, then I yeah. just and it, you know, this is this is scarier than I, I don't know why. There's something like there's something matter about it, like the fear of fear. Talking about it is scarier than actually doing it. Well, well, let's dive into that because Phil was about to introduce me, you know, obviously, but everybody who's seen the show knows that I'm I stalk all of our guests and. Fortunately for Phil and me, we, we know you, Nick, so I didn't have to do too much stalking. But I will say that you're right. There's something really interesting about all of the fear that we face every day in our life and work. And then you have to go and actually talk about it on a platform in front of people. And you're put on the spot and you're kind of like, I don't even know where to begin with that. So so why don't we kind of set the foundation first then before we get into your defining shut up moment. Why don't you build for us kind of the framework so that we can understand what led you on this path that you're on now, Nick? I mean, you're super smart. You do a ton of things outside of Listly. So can you take us back to maybe a time when you kind of felt like, you know, you're just kind of coasting along and then you decided, you know what, enough's enough. Yeah. This is what I need to do now. I was 23, I think. And uh, one day I was working for a working for a clothing company, um, uh, implementing IT systems. And this guy who was we were trying to buy a system from said, "Oh, you should. You should where did my energy go?" He said, "I want your energy. You should come and work for me." And um, stupidly, I said yes. And I didn't get a contract out of this guy. I went and bought two bottles of Moe Chandon, turned up at my best friend's house, knocked on the door, and said, "Hey, what? Guess what? I'm starting in business." And this guy offered me a contract, but the contract just went up in smoke. This guy never um, actually was uh, a man of his word and turned up with you know with a contract. 
but I was jobless. And <laughs> um, that was age 23, and I don't think I've really looked back since. Um, so I don't think, I think sometimes thinking about stuff too hard, you know, I didn't think about it. I just did it. I wasn't afraid because I didn't have enough time to be afraid in the moment. You know, pulling the plug and starting is easy. I don't think that's scary at all. I, I get scared in other ways, I think. But getting going is, and starting things is just fun. It's obvious. Like, it's got to be done. This thing's too annoying. I have to go solve this problem, right? You just... Okay, so it's... So it sounds like the entrepreneurial bug, if that's what we want to call it, it sounds like that's been ingrained in you from a very young age. And you said that's not really what scares you, the, the solving a problem thing, right? The kind of engineering mind that you have. So so if you could define for us what is a fearful moment? Like what are the things that get in your head and get you feeling a little stuck? You know, I, I so I love starting. That, and nothing... Sometimes I think I start too soon. I probably should think a bit more. Sometimes you get what you know, I, I love getting things moving. Like start everything you start has zero momentum, zero brand awareness. Nobody gives a, a, a rats about what you're doing, right? But something inside of you thinks it's cool. So you get going with it, and that's fun too, right? You don't need anybody's input to start building your own momentum. I think the fearful thing I've got is 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 losing it in the like you build the momentum. And you know how hard it was to get that boulder moving, right? And it's moving now. And if you can keep it moving. It's kind of relatively easy. If you take your eye off the ball or you make a bad decision or you do something stupid, that ball can just, like, grind to a halt. And then you basically might as well start again, right? Because you've got to move it from zero. And I'm always fearful of losing momentum, I think. You know, once you've actually put all this energy and soul and passion into something and you've poured your heart out into it, and then you look at it and you think, I let go, you know? That's, that's, that dis that's soul destroying for me, um, very much so. That's like, and, I, and then I think I've learned a few lessons along the way. Like I don't, I, I don't walk away from things as easily as I have done uh, because I know what it takes. And I see and respect momentum. Like if, you know when you've built it, it's there, it's alive. It's like, it's almost alive. It doesn't really totally, like your goal really is to make it so alive that you don't matter, right? It's going to live without you. Then you know that you're going to be successful because you can't do, you've got to stop it. Then. Never mind, just walk away. It's, it's got its own like vibe to it. Um, and I've, you know, I've been there. I've seen that in, in a few examples. I, I mean, one of my scariest moments, you, you, that was kind of hard to write down your scary moments and be authentic about it. I couldn't. That was tough. I, well, you know what? I, so I published a board game. I don't know how much you know about this, but um, a passion of mine since I was like a teenager, I always played board games and got bored with Monopoly and started making my own games. And when I was 17, I was pitching um, game ideas to Milton Bradley and trying to get them to create Connect Four as a computer game. And they thought, oh, there's no market for computer games. So I was like, kind of funny. Right? But um, it took me 20 years until I was 40-something and finally published my board game. And ten th I ordered, like, this is courageous. I don't think I thought of it as courageous at the time, but I ordered 10,000 of them, because why wouldn't you? That's the right price point you needed to get them from China. So I ordered 10,000. 10,000 games is one mother freaking large sort of space, right? It's <laughs> It fills your garage. It's a 40-foot container. You know, that's that like 8 foot high, 12, 15 foot wide, and, you know, 40 foot long. That's a lot of games. And I felt I had a we had an unloading party 
and and like 20 friends came and we'd made all these trolleys so this big container arrived at the house we were unloading it and it totally filled the garage right and and then I had to start like then I called up the first guy and say hey you want to buy my game and they're like what's your game nah don't need any games and this was the distributor and I was like got it he didn't want to talk to me while well, I just made the most incredible game on the planet and he didn't want to have it I was like, I was dumbfounded. I was like, "What the heck?" And then I had to basically resort. That's why I got this. This, this was my um, baptism of fire into social. I had actually crowdsourced the game, but I'd not really used social any beyond the. The game was made by many people, but uh, this was even before the term crowdsourcing. But I then had to get into blogger. I had to start a blogger outreach program because no one wanted to know about my game. So there's a website out there called BoardGameGeek.com. Uh, I set up. I had a you know had gift trap set up on BoardGameGeek.com, and I started lobbying people and sending out samples and stuff, right? And I I met one guy. He actually play tested it before it was even made, and he was like, you know what? You you really surprised me. You've got a really good game here. So he's like, would you write a review? And he goes, no, I don't write reviews. And I was like, what? You're like the coolest, most famous person in the gaming world that I know, and you won't write a review. And he's like, yeah, but you know what? Here's five people you should talk to, and you can tell them that I told them it was cool. So that's exactly what I did. From him came five names. I called them all up, sent them games, and they started playing it and reviewing it. And it basically created this kind of snowball effect. Um, I even we ran this thing in conjunction with a charity, and we gave away a thousand games, um, or tried to. It's actually really hard to give away games, believe it or not. People are really skeptical, like. Ooh, why are you giving it to me? Like, and they think they think I'm going to make money out of posting and packaging on it. It's like, what the heck? So even if you even if you actually pay post and packaging, giving away a thousand games is fairly challenging. So anyway, we started getting these reviews and people started posting them on Board Game Geek. We got an average rating of 7.1, which was really high. And I called up this distributor, and he's like, Hey, what's this going on? Yeah, I got a game there. Do you know Board Game Geek? Yeah. He, it was his Bible, right? So I told him, well, here's my new game. Uh, this is what these people say. It's got a rating of 7.1. He was like, whoa, that's cool. So then he ordered 1,000, right? And it was just like, you know, then you feel like you're off to the races, right? And, and you build that momentum, and then you go from there and one thing to the other and getting on TV shows and, oh, God, it was like, I think of it as a roller coaster ride. And I, I think when I was... At that point, I wasn't actually enjoying the roller coaster. I was, like, I was just feeling the ups and downs instead of, hey, I'm on a ride. You know, the ride. If you look at the whole experience, it's a positive thing because the ride is like up and down and fun. And if you just think of it in the moment, you live right in the moment of the experience. You're coming down a, tr you know, a trough on the on the roller coaster and you want to vomit. I mean, that's when when it, when it collapses. And what I found was, you know, the I've learned to love it more, love the experience, and not be as fearful. Um, because if you live in the moment of the ups and downs, you take it all so personally. And you know that's that's kind of the scariest bit. I think if you um, can learn to stand back and, and see the the bigger experience that you're part of, then it's less scary. And you know, like the game, we made so many mistakes in publishing this board game. Like I, I had. I'd never made a game, never mind published one before, right? So the game was awesome. We got great reviews, but I spent, I obsessed about the inside of the box, the actual game, and that was great. But we we designed the packaging in five minutes, and and so that was a big mistake. 
it was really cool packaging. People said how wonderful it looked, but it didn't it didn't actually sell itself off the shelf. So whenever we sold this game into store, it didn't sell really well. But online, because of the reputation of the game, the game like propelled itself around the world. So I'd got I'd got down to three thousand games left out of my ten thousand, and I was sort of like feeling depleted, worn out, exhausted, and I was away on holiday and thinking, you know what, I don't know if I really want to do this anymore. I was kind of wilted from it. And we get a phone call or an email from, from Norway. Hey, found your game. Uh, we want to order 3,000. Boom, there it was. Stock gone. So that basically cleared us out completely of stock. And uh, we were off again. And, and we decided to redesign the packaging a little bit at that point. And I mean, to this point, we'd sold, we'd sold 80,000 games. So we'd gone through that loop several times around. We came out with like, other other game packs from it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not actively working on the game now because I I kind of concluded afterwards that basically a board game was a passion of mine. It wasn't a career. Like I didn't. I love games, but I didn't want to be a game publisher with with because to be a successful game publisher, you need to have a whole stable of of, of of games. And yeah, I could have invented more games. I had some ideas, but I was like, you know what? I'm still I'm a technology guy. I I'm not. Like gaming was a was a challenge and a passion, and I had to I had to publish one because you know, like age seventeen, every single game company in the UK had rejected all my ideas, and I wanted to be you know wanted to create a game, so I created this game, and it's it's now won a, it's won twenty awards worldwide, it's won a Spielder's Yara Prize, which is like the gaming Oscar, so I I mean I I had to pinch myself when I when I won that award, and I I went to Berlin to pick up um, this this. This gaming award—it was pretty phenomenal. Um, I you know, most gamers kind of make make a game and they make three thousand and then they still have them stuck in their garage. Um, the problem is, you, the problem is once you get into this, you set incredibly high expectations and you set incredibly high goals. So you can be your own, you know, punishing, uh, you know, dispenser of punishment. Like you always critique your own wherever you are. You think you could always do better. There's always more to do, right? You, you can get fearful of that. I mean, I, I kind of wanted to sell a million copies, so I didn't get quite there. But I got I got ten percent of the way there, nearly. So that's pretty cool. That's really cool, Nick. So tell us a little bit about that. You know, that that first ten thousand games. Mm. You got them in your garage. What the heck is going through your mind? Is they're not selling? I mean, is there some fear there that like, holy shit, we're never gonna sell these games, and I'm gonna be stuck with eight thousand five hundred games sitting in my garage, and mm. nobody wants them. Yeah, exactly. No, that was totally the fear, right? I mean, it, it, you just start to think, how stupid was I? How did I let my ego get in the way of all of this stuff, right? And I was so frustrated because literally we play tested the game with 500 people, so we knew the inside of the game was rock solid. Like a, as a programmer, as a kind of technology guy, I know with software you just publish and you know you, you, you push out a fix to your website and it's it's the new the, the new product, right? You can't do that with 10,000 games, and so you know we couldn't fix the packaging of this game because it just wouldn't have it just would have been impossible, right? So. We, we really turned our attention online and, and, and kept going with the Blogger Outreach program and kept sharing all the successes we'd had and all the reviews that we'd had and, and driving people to, to share it and play it. And it you know, it's sort of, the game propelled itself. It's amazing that you sow those seeds and you don't realize just how they just keep going, right? I mean, we, we won a fan 
uh, in France called Bruno Feduti. I'd never met Bruno until I actually met him at a gaming conference after he'd reviewed the game. Um, he wrote an awesome review which then just totally sent sales in, in France like really high rocketing. We, were, we took on a French distributor. Um, it was great, but it was kind of like, you know, I was at, I, I, was at the, I went to this game fair in Essen. We picked up a, what we thought was going to be a German distributor who actually turned out to be a, a really bad decision. He never actually bought a game from us. Like, he never actually did a production run for Germany, and we'd signed a two-year contract. It was like, how stupid was that? I mean, what a dumb situation I had. Germany was the biggest gaming country in the world. And I had a contract not to, to be able to not sell the game to anyone else in Germany but for this guy, and he didn't have any means or money to pay for it. He he got me over to Germany. We were at the game fair. We were selling, you know, these games. We but we we were blocked out of the German market for two years, and then two years later, when this all came, just as this was all big, the contract was about to expire, we we got in touch with the, the one of the main German distributors there. And they were like all overtaking the game, and they they started. Uh, we designed the German game, which was, and their advice was completely opposite to everything he'd said. So, like one of the things I've learned in this process is you can take on way too much feedback. You can listen. Like I published the game, and there was an expansion pack, and I didn't publish the expansion pack for two or three years because I was full of so much feedback from so many people. I didn't have any feedback from anyone from the first game. And I should not have listened to feedback from anybody on the second game. I should have stuck with my own voice and saying, this is what I think is right. And I didn't, and I, and I held back for three years. Anyway, this German publisher that we, got, we eventually signed with started lobbying for us, and that's how we won the Spiel des Jahres Prize. And it just, you know, that you, you don't realize when you've actually created something that has a life, it keeps propelling itself. So this game is now in 12 languages worldwide. Um, and that wasn't for me calling up different people in different languages. They discovered the game, called us, and said, "Hey, we want to make a game for in, uh, you know, in Norwegian, or we want to make a game in French or German, or even in China." I mean, it was that—that that was the funniest thing to me. Was like, I make these games in China, I ship them all the way to Canada, and then we get an order from China after ship them all the way back. So, um, <laughs> it's—I think social. You don't realize when you've actually given something a life and it's people have an opinion about something and they care about it, it that that can have its own momentum that keeps keeps going forevermore. So Nick, I, I really love where you're going with that conversation because when I first met you, we actually met at an event for community managers. So we were talking all about social and all about you know managing community, building relationships with other people. And I have found that from what you've just told us here in our conversation today, I, I think it sounds like the foundation that you built and all the things that you did successfully had a lot to do with community building and being social with the people that you wanted to provide a solution for. If, if that's true, can you can you kind of walk us through that? Because I think yeah. right now, in the, in this day and age, right now, we're, everybody's competing to stand mm. out in the noise. So how does one successfully build a community and stay relevant with the social platform that we all have you know, to work with? We were, like, basically we did it from the ground up before that you can't add social to a product. You can't put lipstick on a pig. It's still a pig, right? You have to make a social pig first before you put lipstick on it. And that's what we did with the game was we, we built social into it. We crowdsourced the content 
So people were buying the game because their photos were in the game. And guess what? Then they shared it and bought you know, copies to give to their friends because their photo was in the game. So we, we did a lot of things right. I didn't really totally get the blogger outreach program. I didn't make friends. Like some of these bloggers were actually became my friends. But I needed to take it beyond gaming, and I didn't quite see that because I couldn't. I could get on with gamers, and so I understood. Really, I need to take this out into mommy bloggers, and I didn't get that until it was too late. Right? I, I didn't. I kind of lost my momentum there. So, you need to realize that the people you're reaching out to really need to be your friends and your peers and your your allies. And I did a lot of that. I did a lot of that from the ground up by building it into the game. Now I look at it and I think, well, you know, for example, we're comparing that to gift from gift trap to to Listly. We're much more about building community and helping people promote their content and making them heroes through their use of the product um, and building that into the product and, and getting people to share and write reviews about it. it you know, it, I don't think I understood what I was doing with the game. It was all intuitive. Like that was the right thing to do. There's such a all these terms like blogger outreach and crowdsourcing didn't exist, right? There wasn't a manual back then. It was just felt. It felt like the right thing to do. Like, well, who do I know in gaming? Well, I go to this game club in Vancouver, and this guy has a website, and he writes stuff, so I'll talk to him. And that's why it's like, who do I know that knows someone that knows someone? I just kept reaching out, and you know, for example, I, I mean, I used LinkedIn a lot in those days. I, I mean, I got through to I found buyers at Toys R Us, and I found uh, buyers at uh, Walmart all through through LinkedIn. It, I don't. It was funny because this was very. You have to bear in mind when I published this game, Twitter didn't exist, right? It, which was so like, it seems so easy now. To, to if I, I, I almost wish it didn't happen, right? And start again now because on top of the platforms that exist today, it would be so much easier. And LinkedIn existed, but people were resistant to it. There were so few people on LinkedIn. You know, now it's a kind of you know social graph of everybody everywhere, so it's a lot easier to find people. Um, and I don't think anyone today realizes or cares about just how much easier it is. I mean, when I crowdsourced photos, I had to pay a guy to write some code to upload images to and customize a web app. Now I could do it and like I just got to flicker and grab Creative Commons license images and we're done, right? I mean, we use that, but on afterwards, I mean, we started our, our own contest platform. I could have just used Listly for that. I mean. That's kind of why I fell in love with the idea of Listly was because I got how hard it was to crowdsource, and you know engagement is such engagement is still the holy grail we're all chasing, but we don't really, very few people really get it. I think they talk a lot about it, but they still basically people are so um, eyeballs driven, like page click, like clicks, views, and not kind of I I kind of talk about I'd rather have a beating heart than a rolling eye, like you know that's we want people to care because I know when people care, they work when I'm not because they don't think it's work. It's fun. They're on the team. They're, they're a fan, right? And I, I, I've, been, I've walked through the hall at Essen, which is the biggest game fair in the world, 120,000 people, 150,000 people turn up, and I have people chasing me down the hall like, oh, you're the gift trap guy. Oh, is that the next mini game? Like, oh, where can I get it? I mean, that... That's like being a rock star on a stage. Like that's the nearest that you. Know, it's like you think of what does it feel like to be, you know, status quo or whoever you want. You know, some big band, Beyonce standing on stage dancing. What does it feel like to be that superstar? 
And if you're a gamer, being at Essen, being trailed by someone who loves your game is pretty close to it. <laughs> you know, what's so cool about all your stories is though you may have lost momentum for being a game producer, if you will, what's so amazing is that you found, you know, to be cheesy here, you found your why. You found the purpose why you liked creating the types of software and games and products mm. that you produce. And what you said is it's, it's golden. It's all about engagement. It's all mm. about bringing community together and, and spotlighting all of them and, and giving them a platform to shine, right? Mm. I mean, at the, at the end of it all, isn't that really what it's all about, Nick? It is. I think, really, that's more and more. I, you know, and sometimes I, I say it to myself, and then I realize, just a minute, I need to do that more, right? It's, it's, sometimes you can realize you actually know what the textbook would say if the textbook were, writ were written, or you're writing the textbook, and then you need to stand back from yourself and say, just a minute, I know the truth. I know I should be doing this, right? And it's very easy to forget. I mean, sometimes it's just great to stop and stand back and look at what are you doing and look at what other people are doing. And, you know, you can get lost in the moment if you don't take that time out. Uh, it's a challenge because some, the worst thing you can do, as I found with gaming, was ask too many people for advice, right? You have to figure out who your advisors are going to be and you know, and find out which is your own voice. Like with my game, I didn't really know it, but I had my voice, right? And I lost my voice by listening to too many people as I went to the second edition of the game, right? If you're a blogger, what's your voice? Most people don't even know that, and many don't even find it. But when you do find it, for God's sake, don't lose it. I found it, didn't know I had it, lost it, you know, and now I I think I get it. I think I'm back in... in, in like when I've got it, I will I will cherish it because your voice comes from momentum. That was my thing about not. I have a fear of losing losing that. What do I lose my fans or losing the momentum? Like I look at I look at Listly as a machine, right? It's like it's got inputs and outputs. Every machine has got inputs and outputs, right? And it's a, it's a beast. I don't. I don't. I'm not Listly. Listly is Listly, right? I I I was there at the beginning. And I introduced a bunch of people to it, and I get on Hangouts, and I'll talk to people, and I. But I'm not it. It is it, and it's got its own life, and it has its own culture. And I can try and lead that culture, and then people can go, yeah, great, and then they'll follow it, or they can go, Nick, you're being nuts. We didn't even hear what you said. Like you can't force things to go anywhere, but you know, you can lead the charge. And if if you're doing the right things. People will jump on your charge. They will, you know, they'll embrace and adopt what you're doing. They'll say that makes sense. I get that. We'll do that. You know, but it's it's funny. I think people are people don't really realize how much they own their own culture. They think culture comes from somewhere else, right? But I think about that like the biggest thing uh, I call habit. Think of habit as the new black, right? The biggest thing like what drives your day. Each of you guys, right? I, I bet you it's driven by Facebook, it's driven by your email inbox, it's going to be driven by Google Plus, or wherever you wherever you choose to slice up your time. It's driven by your clients. What is it that makes your habitual day, right? And you have to think about that. What is it that drives your customer's day? Because if you can't insert yourself, like, is the Shut Up Show earning a slot in everybody's week? Like, I can't wait to get the next episode when it's out. Will I watch it live? Will I consume it afterwards? Oh, look, that's a guest. I really want to hear what he's or she's got to say, right? You have to think about, if you're not thinking, how can 
the product that I'm making become habitual for my audience, you're just going to get forgotten. It's not they're not going to pick you up next week when you when you've lost momentum or forgotten about them. If they make it habitual, they're going to use your machine. They're going to use your tool set, and they're going to use your experience. They're going to call on you for a phone call because, you know, you're part of their habit of a new product launch. Or a, a, before I write a blog post, the first thing I want to do is discuss it with Bernie. I want to discuss it with Phil. What do I do? How do I? Who are my people? I tap into. How do I surround myself with people? How do I become habitual? I mean, that if you're not thinking habit. You know, you you're missing out because, like this, the best you I listened to one of your guys' shows and it just blew me away. Was there was one bit where you talked about, um, you said, I always think that attention was the sparsest resource on the planet, and you said something in one of your shows that was basically motivation is even more important than attention because there are 24 hours in the day, assuming I'm motivated. I can work 24 hours a day. As soon as I lose my motivation, that can slice that in half or down to like 10% or nothing. Well, if you've got nothing that gets you up and says I got to go, like you have to guard yourself, right? And I think I think I tweeted something and you tweeted it back to me afterwards. I was like, sec uh, self trump seconds. Like you've got to look after yourself because that gives you more time. And that was just like, I was like. That was freaking. That was the best show you. You actually didn't have a guest on that week. <laughs> thank you. No, thank you. Um, and and it's it's a perfect segue because Phil's going to ask you a magic question. But before he asks it to you to, to close up the show here, the really important thing is the reason Phil and I started the show was exactly what you just said right there. It's a habit. Phil and I are coming every week to support each other, and then we ended up opening the community to being a part of that process with us, being a fly on the wall, and even bringing on a third guest like you today to talk about these very fearful things. So thank you for saying that. That reinforces the whole genesis of the show. And Phil has the big question that we believe will help our community, but then you too as a guest for being here. Phil? Did I read this bit? I don't know if I know what question's coming now. Scary. Well, it's, it's of course the hard one, Nick. It's what's your favorite ice cream? That's really no. It's not that. That would be fun though, but that doesn't scare the hell out of anybody, right? You can have whatever flavor of ice cream you want, though. If it gives you energy, it's probably better ice cream. But let's talk about fear, buddy. Where are you at right now? What are you afraid of? What's keeping you up at night? Maybe what's uh, what's going on with Listly that maybe we can help with as Bernie and Phil, or we can help with as the Shut Up Show community. Because now that you've been on the show, Nick, you're part of the family. So we want to help support you, brother. So let us know. What what's got you right now, and how can we help you overcome that? Yeah, I mean we're we're always looking, you know, to make trying to make Listly more habitual, but it doesn't. That's not my need, right? I, someone else has to need it, right? Has to solve the problem for them, and you know, the, there are people have adoption processes, and they come back to the website and they try it. There's a lot of people, and we have a lot of traffic. You know, we have we're at seven thousand on Alexa. We have kind of millions of million plus page views a month. It's growing nicely, but I always want to know what what stops people. I mean, that would be my. That's the best piece of feedback. Like, you know, I said don't listen to feedback, but you'll get the choose what feedback you're going to listen to. But you need to have plenty of feedback to be able to choose from. I always want to know what stops people. Um, and people are not very good at that. They don't really realize why they don't do something. I I think I fear. Um, Finding that we're we're trying to find our secret source, right? I mean, people love lists. That's the ultimate secret source. But people don't 
people don't sit down and go to Listly and, and consume like our vision. They discover us bit by bit. They, they find breadcrumbs of us spread across the web. So they just they see us on a, a embedded on some blog post somewhere. They see a contest running, right? Oh, I'll join in on that. They see someone sharing a list, and and that's how they they, they search in Google, and then the top result comes up, and it happens to be a listly list, right? So my, my the thing I'm always curious about and fearful about is what 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 stops people? Because if I knew if we could prioritize that, and some of it some of it is some people are just late adopters, and there's nothing you can do other than time. I think that's that's the biggest thing I've learned is that you know persistence and being there for the long term is one of the best things you can actually you know just keeping going and and sticking to your vision and, and sticking to your belief. So I think I'm I think I fear losing momentum, but I don't really see it because I don't feel like I'm I don't feel like I'm driving it. But we make decisions based on the data and we see what is it you know, where is the friction in the process? I love, I love hearing that from people. They tell me why, why they don't use it. Um, we have to figure out, you know, is that something that's okay? Or is that something that if we fix that, is that going to be a rocket fuel? Because that's what we're looking for, right? Every startup like ours is growing and we, we've got to where we've got to and it's, a, it's growing at a kind of, a, of its own rate. Uh, but we're, we're always looking for that next piece of rocket fuel, right? We just added Twitter lists a month ago. So we can actually support Twitter lists from Listly, and that's just propelled it. That's very social. It's visible, and um, we're always looking for that next piece of fuel. And some people, um, and finding out what it is that's stopping people is is something that I'm afraid of. Is trying to find out what what are we missing? What's right under our nose? It'll be really, really easy to do. Am I? I'm afraid of missing that, right? Because you're so close to it, you're right up against it. It's like right up against your nose, and you can't. You need to stand back and look. Yeah. So I, I always ask, like to ask those questions. Yeah, so the fear of missing the obvious is is likely what's keeping you up, and that's something hopefully folks can help uh, do. They can create listly lists. They can do anything they want. But, Nick, tell us where, uh, as a close here, tell us where they can find out more about you so folks can get more Nick Kellett awesome. Yeah, they can, um, they can obviously find me at uh, nickkellett.com. They can find me at uh, listly slash nickkellett. If they sign up for Listly, they'll get a, a weekly newsletter from me. Um, so that's kind of like I try and share kind of marketing insights and things I've learned about content marketing, content strategy every week. Um, so that's that's kind of been a fun challenge, moving from from being social to being email driven. I am a I am a huge advocate. You cannot can't say enough good things about newsletters, right? That's a, a big source of fuel. So those are all the places, and also I'm on LinkedIn as uh, Nick Keller. So. I accept invites all of these places and Facebook too. Yeah, wherever you can find a social network, you can find our friend Nick Kellett. So thanks for being with us today, buddy. We really appreciate learning from you about how to get that jet fuel, how to keep it going, how to fight through that fear. Really awesome stuff, man. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. It's been fun. Thank you for joining the Shut Up Show. It was another amazing episode, and we really appreciate you being here. If you don't want to miss another episode, simply go to our homepage and click the subscribe button or go to theshutupshow.com slash subscribe and we'll deliver an episode to you one to three times a week. If you haven't already done so, please consider leaving us a star rating and comment on iTunes. That's the only way we can prove the show just for you. The Shut Up Show is sponsored by The Amazing Cells. That's S-E-L-Z dot com. If you want seriously simple selling, 
you gotta go check them out today. Until next time, folks, shut up and make shit happen.